If I haven't introduced myself and you're here for the first time, my name's Bruce. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Cross Point, and that means a lot of different things. Uh, sometimes it means I'm the chief target. Um, the greatest joy of my job is doing what we're doing now. We're looking into the Scriptures to read this historically accurate account of the life of Jesus. You can look with me in Luke 6. And the reason I asked how many of you were natives is those of you who were natives and who have had the good sense to not leave California very much and go to terrible places, uh, you may not realize just how different California is, particularly Southern California. This summer, I was reminded of the difference. I, was, I flew into a pretty little town called Bozeman, Montana. It's beautiful until it starts snowing. And I was there in the summer, so it was just gorgeous. And at the TSA line and the security line in the airport, I saw a sign that I didn't know existed and certainly I've never seen here in California. It said, avalanche shovels and bear spray are forbidden. <laughs> avalanche shovels. What that means is tons of deadly snow has come rocketing down upon you. And the best you can do is take something called an avalanche shovel, which I assume is very big because it's a lot of snow in an avalanche, and dig yourself and your buddy out, okay? And then bear spray? You guys know much about grizzlies? They hunt people. If you're in a grizzly's territory, you may be hunting grizzly or you may be being hunted by grizzly. And normal people apparently pack into the wilderness facing these apex predators, and they take spray with them to keep the bear away. I'm glad to live in Huntington Beach, California, you know? The taxes are brutal, but I'm so grateful that an avalanche shovel and bear spray doesn't enter into my experience ever. But there was a lot of cool things in Bozeman, too, along with the menace of grizzlies and later getting caught in the snow. We went to Bozeman, it's a beautiful little town, and then we went out. I was there for a family camp. We went out to the campground's way out in the sticks somewhere, I think it's called Livingston, and I started noticing the differences between Bozeman, Montana, and Southern California. The most amazing stuff started happening. For instance, the sun went down, and you know what happened? It got dark. I mean, really dark. Like, can't read the book without turning on electricity kind of dark. I didn't realize how much light pollution I lived with. I can walk out of my house 2 o'clock in the morning and read a book between the neighbor who has insomnia and keeps the big TV on all night and the streetlights and everything else that's going on. I didn't realize how noisy Huntington Beach is, too. It's a cool town, but man, we got a lot going on, it turns out, because of all the people that have come here. And it was the weirdest thing to have to learn to be in silence and learn to relax. And I discovered, among other things, that it was much easier for me to pray in that environment. As we look, as we keep walking along with Jesus in Luke chapter 6, you're going to see Jesus at prayer. You're going to see Jesus, in fact, in one of the most extraordinary verses in the New Testament. And I'll tell you on the front side, as soon as I read the beginning of this little story in Jesus' life, you're going to be tempted to find it so completely unrealistic and so separate from anything you've experienced that you're going to put it into what I call a that's nice category. 
that's nice, that's good for Jesus, that has absolutely nothing to do with me. But give Scripture, give God and His story of His Son, give it time and see what you can learn from what we read in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In those days, it says, He went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. In those days. What's Luke talking about? If you you were here last week, you discovered that Jesus in two separate arguments about keeping the Sabbath and being what the Pharisees thought was a reverent person, entered into a controversy with the Pharisees that exposed them so badly that he says in verse 11, from that time forward, they started talking about what they could do to Jesus. See, they've been talking about Jesus for years because no one has ever preached like this. No one has ever had the faculties of healing and authority and command over everything, including nature, that Jesus does. But this time, they've been so exposed, they've been so embarrassed, they've been silenced by His righteousness compared to their self-righteousness. The machinery that's going to kill Jesus is now firmly in motion. And wicked men are going to be so blinded by their self-righteousness that they're having council meetings now to talk about how to get rid of Jesus. And Luke says, in those days... With all of that happening, Jesus went out to the mountain by himself, up at elevation. He took the initiative. He went far. He got away, and he went there to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That's the only time in the New Testament, even in the life of Jesus, that praying all night is mentioned. So something big is happening But when I say that you might put verse 12 in the that's nice category, that seems so difficult, so far removed from your day to day that you just kind of put it down as a historical footnote. And here's a question I have for you. Do you think that night was an easy night for Jesus? See, one good Christian thinker says that people, when they think of Jesus, easily put him in two mistaken categories. They either think he's magical or just part of dogma. That magical, he's not human at all, they dehumanize him, and the point of the gospel story is that the Son of God actually became a human being. Jesus, in the gospel of Luke, continually calls himself the Son of Man to remind us of his humanity and at the same time connect to a messianic prophecy way back in the book of Daniel where a Son of Man appears who receives worship and honor and glory in the inheritance of the nations. This is a real human being up in that mountain. And if you put him in the magical category, you'll miss the effort. Because a real man, born of a woman, the son of God, but born of a woman in all the ordinary painful ways, with blood and water and crying and fear on the part of the mother, and the relief that a son has been born safely into the world, that had to be cradled on those first nights of his life to protect him from the cold, anything that would make him sick or harm him. A man in the fullness of life walks up a mountain and all night spends time in prayer with his father. That was difficult. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 52 gives me a quick, fascinating explanation of how Jesus grew up. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He grew wiser and He grew up physically, and it says He grew in favor with God and man. In other words, He had normal human development. When Jesus was in the manger, He wasn't pretending to be a baby. He wasn't looking up at the starry, at the starry sky over Bethlehem saying, it's a pretty cool world I've made. This is gorgeous. Oh, yes, goo, 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 goo. He's a real human being. He became a real human being for your sake and for mine so that we could trade lives. As God, His word, His death is infinitely valuable to cover the sins of any and all. As a human being, He can actually take our place. He faces the same temptations, shortcomings, limitations that you and I do, but with this big difference without sin. And now the Son of God, who describes Himself as the Son of Man, is praying all night to God, and that's difficult. Have you ever asked yourself what makes prayer difficult? Let me ask you, do any of you find prayer simple? I'll just be honest with you. I always try to be honest with you when I'm up here, sometimes to the chagrin of my family, too honest. Prayer can be difficult. I find myself easily distracted. And here's in thinking about what this Scripture and many others tell me about prayer, in addition to all the physical limitations and the noise pollution and the light pollution and the constant chirping of the cell phone, because the Internet's rewired my brain and I can't pay attention for much longer than about two and a half seconds until something else happens somewhere else on the Internet. Here's the core of the spiritual problem. Prayer is difficult because prayer, more than anything else, demonstrates dependence upon God. That's the trouble. Prayer demonstrates dependence on God. See, when I'm praying, that's all I'm doing. I'm speaking to the God who is always there, but I can't see and if I'm very honest about what my behavior sometimes shows regarding prayer, it must be that in spite of what the Bible tells me and in spite of what I would tell you I doctrinally and biblically believe, I must believe that when I'm praying, not much else is happening. I'm just praying, and it's not doing much good. Have you ever had that impression? Here's what that feels like and looks like in prayer. You've got a clock ticking inside yourself saying, I need to stop doing this and go get to work. Make things happen. And Jesus, who will go to work and walk down this mountain and do things that were so spectacular, science fiction writers and special effects artists in, at the height of their powers could not do justice to what Jesus did next, but first Jesus is praying. He is spending all night in prayer to God. And just so you don't put this in a separate category that is Jesus only, let me tell you, the epistles of Scripture tell us explicitly how we are to behave. Sometimes in the gospel, because Jesus is the creator and the savior, we're not sure what is simply him and what we are meant to imitate, but the epistles help us. Because the letters, the epistles of Paul and the other apostles were written by ordinary sinful men who had been saved by Jesus and called into a special work for him, and they were written to people just like us. 
If you've read any of the epistles, they'll tell you very quickly how ordinary and petty and self-seeking and fearful and sometimes generous and other times selfish, just how normal all of these people were. And listen to the way Paul tells them, these ordinary people, in this case the church of Colossae, to pray. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. I want to show you to you in two different translations, in fact. Read the first verse with me. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. You could memorize a verse of Scripture this morning if you wanted to. That's really short. That's really clear. This isn't written to super-Christians. This is written to ordinary Christians. Here is the expectation. We are to devote ourselves to prayer. In other words, we're supposed to stay with it. It's not supposed to be a passing thing. It's not to be an occasional investment or entanglement. We're supposed to be devoted to it. And here's the difficulty, the very same difficulty I'm convinced that Jesus faced all night in the mountain. We are to keep alert in it. We're to be watchful. We're to pay attention. We're to fight off distraction. We're to fight off the inner clock that tells you falsely that nothing is happening. This isn't doing much good. You better get up and get doing because the real world is waiting outside that door once you're done praying. It's not true. Prayer works. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Why would Paul add that? Because... One way to treat God is to treat Him as a kind of heavenly concierge. And you just bring Him your wish list for the day, the things you need for your life and the plans that you've made. Paul says, in all of your watchfulness, your devotion, your alertness in prayer, make sure that you do all of that with a continual attitude of thanksgiving. And why not? God has already given us everything. He has given us Himself. He has given us His Son. The ESV gives it a little bit differently and makes the same emphasis. Read that with me. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. If you're steadfast, that means there are things that keep you from this. There's opposition. There's distraction. There's discouragement. We are to continue praying as Jesus did. And Jesus himself taught us just that in Matthew chapter 6. Look at this, the famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Here's how Jesus Jesus taught us to pray. And when you pray, in other words, he takes it for granted that we will. He expects that we will. It's not an if, it's a when. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his nemeses, the Pharisees. They were big prayers, but unfortunately, they were big public prayers. Jesus isn't opposed to public prayer. He prays in public all the time. But His motive is different. When Jesus prays, whether He's all alone on the mountain in the middle of the night, two hours before sunrise, or He's praying in front of a great crowd, or He's praying in the quietness of His friendship with His disciples, He is praying for one single reason, to have communion and fellowship with His Father. 
He doesn't mind other people seeing. He teaches them to pray by praying in front of them, but they are not the point. Receiving their praise is not the motive. He is praying to spend time with God, to hear from God, to get direction from God. So Jesus tells us, His normal disciples, you do the same thing. Don't pray so that other people will say, oh, what a wonderful man, what a wonderful woman of prayer. Did you hear how she prays? Oh, to breathe the air that she does because she knows the Lord so well, I can tell by the way she prays. You may give that impression to someone, but Jesus says if that was your motive, enjoy it because that praise from people, that's all you get. God will give you nothing more than that earthly reward of having people admire your faith. Jesus says you go the other way. When you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, the God you can't see, the God who is always there but you can't see, and that's part of the struggle and the difficulty, and here's the promise. Read the last sentence with me. Jesus said, and your Father who sees in secret will do what? He'll reward you. You seek Him. You talk to Him for His own sake. Not to be seen by people, but to be heard by God. He'll reward you. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. What can we expect from that kind of prayer? Well, you have to read the rest of the story. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. If I slow down and read the Bible carefully, I realized that a tired man walked down that mountain. There's no other way, unless I put him into the magical category, there's no other way to see it. He was tired. You can't talk to anyone, not even God, all night without growing tired physically. He walked down the mountain. I don't know if his disciples knew that he was on the mountain. Now they know he's among them. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. That word, unfortunately, was not translated. They just left it in Greek and brought it over into English. An apostle means one who is sent. From the many disciples, he's now going to walk apparently among a, raw, a large crowd and reverse what the rabbis did. What happened in the world of Jesus, a student went seeking a rabbi and humbly asked, can I be with you in God's world? Everything is backwards and better. Now the Son of God walks down from the mountain he made after speaking to his father all night and from a much larger group, he calls them all and chose from them twelve, their names, ordinary men. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Twelve ordinary men. So ordinary that when the Gospels give the list, sometimes the order varies. But one man always comes last. Judas Iscariot, who Luke explains, became a traitor. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus made a mistake? Because he had dozens, hundreds of disciples, and he chose 12. 
Mark 3.14, telling me of the same event, tells me why He chose them. Mark explains, Jesus chose twelve and called them apostles, twelve apostles in a nation that historically was formed by twelve different tribes. And of the twelve, one of them had the devil inside. One of them, after enjoying what we now call the Last Supper, went out, John says, into a dark night to bring wicked men to arrest Jesus and to put the light of the world on a Roman cross and scourge him and mock him and beat him and curse him and spit upon him until they made absolutely sure trained Roman killers, the most fearsome warriors of the ancient world, made sure he was dead. Do you think Jesus made a mistake? You think after all that prayer he got it wrong? He didn't. Luke wants me to see that. He wants me to see it in his gospel, but he especially wants me to see it in the companion volume he wrote, which is a couple books over. It's called the book of Acts. Will you please hold your place and go over to Acts chapter 4, please? See, Luke wrote both a gospel and this book of Acts, the history of the first Christians, the story of the first churches how the gospel began in Jerusalem and went everywhere. And in Acts chapter 4, he's bringing you to a pivotal point in their lives where the same machinery, the same men that kills Jesus threatens two apostles, tells them to stop preaching and talking about Jesus or face the consequences. Under that threat, which was deadly, they went back to the church and were told in verse 23 when, in verse 24, when they heard it, the church lifted their voice together to God. In other words, they prayed, and here's their perspective. Verse 27, they pray to God and say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, everyone was against you. That's the point. One way to categorize the whole world into two simple groups is Gentiles and Israel. That's all there is. If you're not in Israel, you're a Gentile. And they all gathered, it says, Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Here's why they gathered. Here's why they conspired. Here's why those men were in the garden with Judas the night when Jesus was betrayed. They prayed this happened to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was in charge even of the traitor. He didn't make a mistake. You know why he did that? For your sake. For love of you. Jesus made an appointment with the cross that his father had sent him to, to which he also willingly went, as he said, to lay down his life for his friends to be the good shepherd who faces the wolf and takes death so that the flock may be spared, and Jesus even provided the means for His own execution. All this after praying all night to God. So what can we expect from prayer? You can expect not only rewards from God, part of the reward from God is to have guidance from God Himself, for you to hear from God and to Get from the creator of the universe who knows how everything ends and who knows what he's up to at all times, what does he think about your situation? See, because all too often I get it backwards. I kind of tell God what I would like, I pray, and then I run out the door to get busy and to 
make it happen. Have you ever had that experience? Would you like to have guidance from God Himself? Would you like to read His written Word to whom He has also promised the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity we've been talking about and singing about, to open up the book and make, it, make you understand what it means and how it applies to your individual life so that you make sure that you don't waste your life? A friend of mine a few years ago, we were both a little scatterbrained, He's super smart, but we're both a little distant, and we got to talking, and we realized we were about 30 miles away from where we should be. And I thought to myself, or he joked, I don't remember, you know, we're lost, but we're making good time. (laughs) Prayer can spare you that. So many Christians have run ahead of prayer. They've run ahead of God, and they're lost, but they're making good time. You not only have guidance from God Himself, you have power to do everything God wants you to do. Look at verse 17. It says, speaking of Jesus, He came down with them, the disciples, and He stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And that's Luke's shorthand to tell you the whole world was there. Judea is a region. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Tyre and Sidon are pagan cities way up north. Everybody was there. Jews and Gentiles, everyone is crowding around Jesus. Here's why they were there, verse 18, who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. And that's what I would like to see in my mind's eye. One man who has spent a night with God doing everything God wants not moving one step ahead of His Father's will. Jesus explained it in the Gospel of John. He says, I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. He didn't move a step ahead from God, and that's so corrective to me. That humbles me so much. As Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher in the English language, said, though infinitely better able to do without prayer than we, Christ prays much more than we do. Where did I ever get it in my spiritual understanding that what mattered most was me getting out the door and getting to it? See, Jesus worked in in a very different order from the way we do. Here's how Jesus worked. Jesus always started with the Father. You see it very clearly here in Luke chapter 6, but if you just follow His life, you'll see this is the pattern. This is not only the norm, this is the rule. He is alone with His Father. He insists on it. He gets away from His disciples on purpose so that He can speak to God and hear from God. The Son of Man, the one that Daniel prophesied, has in His humanity somehow, I don't get it, need and desire to hear from the Father. So he does. Then and only then does he go to the disciples. And with him, he goes forward to do the will and the work of God. And he finally, after all that, he faces the crowd and all their problems. How do I do it? Well, brimming with self importance and unwarranted confidence, I get up in the morning and, trusting in coffee, run out the front door into the crowd with all of their problems. 
Because I'm under my own guidance and under my own power, I find myself powerless to help them. And they know it. And I go home defeated, and I get the counsel of a few good disciples around me and tell them, boy, that didn't work. That was terrible. I got my head handed to me and everything I tried to do today. What do you think I should do? And they don't know much better than I do. And then I finally retreat to the Father and say, God, I made a mess of it. Nothing important, nothing eternal happened today. I ran ahead of you. You were willing, you were there, but I wasn't paying any attention. Does that make sense to anyone else, or is it just me? We have to do it the way Jesus did it. We have to start with the Father. In the penetrating question of Corey Ten Boom, she asks, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Makes all the difference in the world. Whether you, with God, steer your life through prayer rather than driving your own way and counting on prayer as an emergency, as a contingency plan when things don't work out, that's the spare tire. All I've simply tried to tell you is this. I've tried to show you the example of Jesus, the clear teaching of the epistle, and the example of the instruction of Jesus as well that told us to pray so that you will know this, putting prayer first, we put everything else in the right order. The battle for you, the rest of the day and tomorrow when God grants you breath and life and energy and intelligence again will be where do you start? My encouragement, I have an invitation to you in the name of Jesus is that you would start with the Father, that you would fight past the distraction, that you would fight past the noise pollution and the light pollution and the spiritual pollution and every single other thing that would make you give prayer either very little attention or not much attention at all, and that you start with the Father and you hear from Him, and then you go out into the world and trust His guidance, and trust His power. You can do everything God wants you to do if you'll start with Him first. Let's talk to Him about it right now, shall we? Let's take a moment of prayer to ourselves. And let me ask you two questions. The first relates to the cross of Jesus. I told you a few minutes ago Jesus Jesus chose Judas, knowing that Judas, humanly speaking, would participate in this evil, evil orchestration that would put him on the cross. My question for you, are you absolutely certain that Jesus died for your sins? Have you taken him as your Savior? See, it's so easy to come to church and admire Jesus and not trust Jesus, not come to Him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I've been under my own guidance. I've been under my own power. And when you face the question, you hope that you're going to be okay, you trust maybe that God will make it right somehow in the end, but you don't know. You're not dead, absolutely certain. You wouldn't bet your soul on the fact that you're right with God. If you're not dead, set, certain, my invitation to you is to turn away from yourself, give up on your sin and your own guidance, and say, Jesus, save me. I need you. You went to the cross for me. I get it. You didn't die for your sins. You died for mine. I trade. I'll exchange lives with you, Lord. Please save me. And at that point, the life of God will enter into you. 
You'll be welcomed into the family of God, not by your works, but as a gift that He purchased for you on the cross. If you're not certain of that, call out to Him right now. You don't need the right words, magic words. Just call out to God and say to Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you're a Savior. Save me. And if you do that, I hope and pray you'll also let us know on that connection card because we want to celebrate We want to pray for you. We want to send you a Bible. We want to provide anything we can to help you grow in your new spiritual life. But make certain of it. Don't put it off. Don't wait to hear more. A lot of people being given a clear word of obedience from Jesus wait for more and more information. You have enough information. You need a Savior. He is that Savior. Trust Him. And the second question is for those of you, like me, you're a disciple of Jesus. You follow him. Listen, do you start with prayer, really? Do you insist on a day-to-day? None of us are perfect, but on a day-to-day, as the pattern of your life, do you start with the Father, then meet with Christians, and then go out into the world? Do you always start with the Father? If you don't, could you tell him that you will? That you'll use this day to meet with him again privately? And tomorrow you'll start with him privately and you'll wait with whatever you have. A little understanding, a little patience, or a great deal of it. You'll wait for his guidance. You'll wait for his power. And only then will you go out to face the crowds and all their troubles. God is so patient. He waits patiently. He waits delightedly for you to go to him. Tell him that you will and then follow through and do it. Do it day after day after day and watch yourself grow in likeness of Christ. Lord, help all those who have spiritual decisions to make right now, whether it's my brothers and sisters who must humbly say, prayer is more of a spare tire for me than a steering wheel. I start with others before I start with God. That's certainly often my case, Lord, and I'm sorry. Thank you for grace to begin again. And God, I pray most especially for those who are right on the edge of faith and humbly saying that they cannot save themselves, that they've sinned and blown it in your sight, but now want to come and ask you to save them. Would you speak to them? Would you draw them across the line of faith? And I pray that they would have the kindness to let us know that they've done that so that we can pray for them and encourage them as they begin their new life with you. This offering, Lord, these connection cards returned with prayer requests, maybe questions, spiritual decisions. This money that we give, it's all from you. It's all for you. You've taught us to be generous. So receive, Lord, what we give, whether it's our confession, our money, our requests, our gratitude. What we have to give is yours. Receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen.